turn with me, if you will, in the Bible to the letter to Titus. And we're going to begin this morning a study in this uh, letter that Paul writes. We read chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but has in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Saviour. To Titus, my own son after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Saviour. For this cause I left thee in Crete, that thou shouldst set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of them, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are all liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. Let's spell heart, shall we? Well, Father, as we come this morning to this portion of Scripture, we just pray that you stir our hearts, Lord, open our eyes, that we would see, Lord, not just the instructions that Paul gave to Titus, but, Lord, the things that are here for us, for our learning. Lord, that we would grow in knowledge and in grace. Uh, Lord, that we would understand that which you are calling us to. Lord, that which you've placed upon our hearts. That we would understand, Lord, that around us there is much deception. There are many who would seek to pervert the gospel. And Lord, give us the boldness and the confidence to, Lord, stand up for sound doctrine and for truth. Father, just bless this time of study, we pray, and stir our hearts. Again, we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the epistle to Titus. When we look at the New Testament, uh, we've got a whole group of uh, doctrinal epistles. You know, Paul's going to speak here to Titus about sound doctrine. Uh, and really, you know, when we look at these um, books, really from Romans through uh, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, uh, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and of course Hebrews, there is so much good doctrine uh, in those uh, epistles that Paul writes. 
We've got seven churches that are written to in the New Testament. Uh, interesting that they all, in their own way, mirror and map those seven churches in Revelation. Although they're different churches, some of them, uh, there is some overlap. Of course, Ephesians is on both lists uh, and so on. But there's there's certainly some parallel themes um, that come on if you do a deeper study of those things. You've got those three that Paul writes, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, whilst he was in prison. Uh, and again, the grace of God upon that man that he writes with such love and, and, and passion. You'd think that at that point you'd be low, you'd be downcast, you'd be, you know, you know, I can't wait to get out of here. But Paul doesn't do any of that. Paul just speaks of God's goodness and God's faithfulness. And he seems to always write with this encouraging tone to stir up the believers. The pastoral epistles, this section we're in at the moment, we've just gone through First and Second Timothy, we're looking at Titus now for a few weeks, uh, and then we'll, uh, Lord willing, get on to Philemon. Uh, just a single page, as it were, just a single chapter letter, a small letter that Paul writes um, to Philemon. Um, just a quick review of Paul's life again. We've done this before, but it's sometimes helpful just to think of the man that is writing these things, the experience he had. You know, he was a man that hated Christianity, hated anything to do with Jesus. And we find that when Stephen was stoned back in the book of Acts, Paul was there. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And he, he stands in this group looking after people's coats as the other members of the Sanhedrin that were there were picking up rocks and stones and throwing them at Stephen, this faithful servant of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I wonder what Paul thought as that was going on. Uh, seemingly there was this kind of hatred in his heart to anything to do with the name of Jesus. I've said many a time before, and I said to somebody this week in a conversation, I said, I can prove to you in 15 seconds that Jesus Christ is God. And they kind of looked at me. I said, because I can talk about Muhammad, I can talk about Confucius, I can talk about Buddha, I can talk about any religious leader or any philosophical um, proponent throughout history, and you'll be okay with that. And you're happy for me to talk and to talk about their life and things. But the moment I start talking about Jesus Christ, you're uncomfortable. And they looked at me, and there was that, that acknowledgement straight away that, yeah, I don't really talk about Jesus. People don't want to hear the name of Jesus. And this person said to me, why is that? I said, because Jesus is the name above every other name. Jesus is the name that every knee will bow before. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And of course, within us, our conscience, there's something there that bears witness to the reality of that fact. That there is no name that is greater or higher than the name of Jesus. And that's why the name of Jesus is the name that people use as a, as a curse word, as a swear word. You don't hear people using Muhammad's name or Buddha's name or, or anyone else. You don't hear anybody using the, the gods of the Hindus as, as kind of a, a swear word, just as a, an expletive. And yet Jesus' name is repeatedly used in that way. And you see that behind this there is a, a, an enemy, a, a satanic power, of course, the devil himself, trying to turn everybody away from Jesus. That's his ultimate goal, his ultimate aim. But regardless of that, Paul is converted on this route to Damascus. He's heading there to capture imprisoned Christians, to stop them talking about Jesus. I mean, Paul loved the Jewish law. And as much as the name of Jesus would have riled him, the fact that these Christians were talking about the Jewish history that he'd known and he'd loved, and saying that that somehow validated Christianity was no doubt a great insult and offense to him. So he's on his way to imprison Christians, and en route, of course, 
he hears that voice, that shining light, that blinding light uh, that literally blinds him. Um, later we find that Paul seems to have a problem with his eyesight, even after he's healed um, throughout the New Testament, it seems to have affected his eyes to such a degree. And no surprise, really. You know, if you were to stare into our sun, the physical sun, for too long, it's really going to do some damage to your eyes. Well, he looked at the Son of God and all his glory and majesty, and no doubt that had a big impact on his life, on his eyes. And, and you know, later we find that Paul uses other people to write letters for him, and he signs them off, you know, with big letters, because seemingly he struggles to see. No doubt, uh, glasses weren't quite what they are today uh, at that time. As a result of his conversion, Paul goes down to Arabia. And in my mind, there is no question as to why he went there. Paul had grown up with the Jewish law. He loved the Jewish law. Why does he go to Arabia? Well, because in Galatians, we have it confirmed that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. And I believe that Paul went back to that mountain, the mountain that the law was given, and spent some time there before God, just trying to unpack and unravel these things that he'd been taught, and thinking, how can all those things be connected to what he was learning about Jesus Christ? And then realizing that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. And the book of Galatians very much is our um, uh, expose on what Paul learned in that time. Uh, and of course, Romans and, and elsewhere go, go even deeper. Um, but Paul makes the point that the law was simply a schoolmaster, a chaperone to lead us to Jesus Christ, to expose our sin, to show us that we need a savior, to show us that we can't meet God's righteous standard. And Paul seems to have learned that lesson very well while he was down there in Arabia. Uh, he comes back, he gets to, uh, to Damascus. And it starts preaching straight away, he just, just can't keep this man quiet, but it seems it wasn't God's time. You know, sometimes there's a lot of enthusiasm um, that, that Christians show, but it, it needs to be coupled with that calling of the Lord. And as a result, Paul is forced to flee in a basket for his life. Um, I'm not saying he was wrong to be preaching and to sharing the gospel, but you know, you need to be letting the Lord lead you. Um, as Oswald Chambers once said, the need doesn't necessarily constitute the call. And I think that's a very wise piece of advice. You know, we need to make sure that we are following the Lord, not running ahead, doing what we think is a good idea. Well, as a result, Paul then spends another 10 years in Tarsus. And, you know, no longer a member of the Sanhedrin, he's got to do something. He's got to earn some money. So he seems to set his hand to making tents. Um, where he learned that skill, I don't know. Maybe he just picked that skill up and thought, I've got to do something. Um, but that's what he does to provide an income for himself. And almost seems to settle down and get kind of accustomed to life there. But as he's growing, as he's learning more about the Lord, it gets to the point that the Lord says, right, now. Now it's time. It's interesting that so many of the people that God uses, he makes them wait before he sends them out in ministry. Yeah, we see it with Abraham, of course, the time that he had before, from the time of being called, you know, some 25 years later, before he finally gets to the point where where we see Isaac being born, the promised uh, son and thing, uh, you know, and with David again, he was told he was going to be king, and it was many years before the Lord allowed him that opportunity. You know, throughout Scripture, we see so many examples like that. Joseph is yet another one, and so on. But you know, even in the New Testament, so many of the apostles and the disciples kind of went through this training period. It was once said, I'm not sure which commentator made the comment, but it was quite valid. He said, you know, 
back then people would spend 30 years in training for three years in ministry. Nowadays, people spend three years in training for 30 years in ministry. You know, and it's, it's not wrong that people kind of sometimes, you know, fast track, as it were, and go to Bible colleges and things like that. And if the Lord's leading, that's great. But, you know, we do well to do things in God's timing and not trying to run ahead. So after these 10 years or so at Tarsus, Barnabas comes looking for him. He's heard about Paul, or Saul as he is at that point. Um, he, he understands that this man has been converted to Christianity, this individual who once hated the church, and he brings him back to the base of the church at Antioch. And this is where the church was really starting to thrive and grow from. The church at Jerusalem is where things really started, but the church at Jerusalem had suffered a lot of persecution. There have been all sorts of issues and challenges to the church there. And that then leads on to the first missionary journey for Paul. Um, interestingly, it's on that journey... Um, that Paul goes first of all um, to the island of, uh, of Cyprus uh, and while he's there it seems that the, the proconsul, the, the leader of the island is a man by the name of Sergius Paulus is converted and from that point Paul take, or Saul takes the name Paul seemingly after Sergius Paulus um, it's as if um, Sergius Paulus seemingly adopts Paul as his own and gives Paul some additional um, credibility, as it were, before Rome. Yes, he was always already a Roman citizen, uh, but there were many Roman citizens. Uh, but Paul has some greater standing, uh, as we see throughout the New Testament and the things that come out. It's a very interesting series of events, the way the Lord leads uh, him in his, his walk in life. Uh, after this, this trip, Paul ends up going back to Jerusalem uh, with Barnabas and meets the disciples and speaks to them and shares what God has been doing. Uh, and the, the, the church at Jerusalem agree that the Lord is using Paul to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Just as Peter was taking the gospel to the Jews, so Paul is taking the gospel to the Gentile Christians. And that leads on to the second missionary journey, and that's when Timothy joins, as we've seen already. The first missionary journey is seemingly where, Paul, where, where Timothy, as a young man, first encounters Paul. Uh, quite possibly, as Paul is um, in Lystra, and he's dragged outside the city, um, seemingly left for dead, and then just gets up the next door, gets straight up, um, and heads back in and carries on preaching. Uh, clearly made an impression on Timothy, as we said in our study of Timothy. And so the next time Paul comes around, a few years later, uh, Timothy now joins Paul on this journey, and then they get to their third missionary journey. And this time, Paul is arrested after going all the way back through Jerusalem and taken uh, down to um, Caesarea uh, and so on. Uh, he's in Jerusalem, and there's a big uproar, and he's smuggled out in the middle of the night because there's a death threat against him from the Jews. Uh, and he's imprisoned in Caesarea for about two years there waiting. So as a result, he appeals to Caesar, and of course his request is granted, and so he then gets on board a ship, goes towards Rome, but he's shipwrecked on route. I'm sure you're familiar uh, with these accounts that were given in the book of Acts, uh, and on Malta for three months there, um, preaching the gospel to the people. You know, God never misses an opportunity to allow us to, to share the gospel. Uh, sometimes what we think is a tragedy is simply the Lord setting up the next opportunity. And then he gets to Rome and he's under house arrest in Rome for uh, a period of time there. And that really is where the book of Acts kind of concludes for us. Um, at the, kind of, uh, the beginning of this imprisonment. Um, and it's while he's there that he writes those prison epistles we mentioned of Ephesians, Philippians and Colossians. Um, but he's later acquitted of these charges and released 
Uh, and this is when he writes First Timothy and Titus from Macedonia. So this book that we're looking at now, and we're going to study over the next few weeks, uh, is written from Macedonia after Paul has been released from prison. So that's kind of the background of where um, Paul is, has been and gone and where he's running from. But then subsequently, Paul is arrested again, this time put in a dungeon. And that's where he writes Second Timothy, which is one we looked at just recently, uh, and that's apparently his last uh, letter that he gets to write. So again, Titus is the one that we're looking at now. Now, Timothy was uh, laboring in this kind of very metropolitan Ephesus. You know, I suppose in some ways very much like London is today, multicultural and so on. But Titus, we find, was on the island of Crete, uh, kind of a different type of environment. Uh, Titus was a Gentile, is a Greek believer, um, but he too had been one to Christ through Paul's witness and through Paul's ministry. Uh, we see that uh, in verse 4 where it says to Titus, my own son. You know, Paul looking at him spiritually as somebody that he's birthed, he's brought to, to know the Lord. Uh, and he'd served Paul again on very special assignments. We read about that in Second Corinthians uh, a number of occasions. Uh, the scriptures there, they're real on the slides. So if you want to uh, dig into that and look at those, please do so. Um, but actually, Paul writes this, as for Titus, he is my fellow partner and fellow worker among you. That's in 2 Corinthians 8. So speaking to the Corinthian church, saying that, you know, he's... He's as I am, doing the work that I've asked him to do. He's working with me and we're working together in our labor to to bring you closer to the Lord effectively. There are many fellow workers in truth um, that Paul had, people that worked with him, but very few of them are really partners as he speaks of um, Titus being, you know, somebody, a, a fiduciary, somebody that, that really is united in the same purpose, the same cause and so on. Just a little bit about Crete then, this is the place that Titus uh, is ministering. Uh, it wasn't an easy place to work from what we understand. Uh, there was a great deal of mythology, no surprise really. Um, you, know, you only look through history and you see how much mythology the Greeks had embraced. Uh, it was throughout their culture. You, know, you can go to places even like the British Museum and you can see how much of um, their belief system was rooted in these... Uh, um, stories of these gods and demigods and so on. And, and uh, I'm sure some of you would have remembered back to, to school where you studied some of these things. Um, it's interesting, even though a lot of that, you can, you can draw links right back to Genesis 6 um, for where those ideas and those accounts all started. According to tradition, uh, Minos was the source of their laws and apparently he'd conquered the Aegean pirates who were there and established a navy. Uh, and then after the Trojan War, the principal cities of the island formed themselves into several independent republics, uh, including those three uh, kind of places there. Uh, I'm not even going to try and pronounce them because I'll get them wrong. Um, and then there were apparently churches in all of these locations, um, and Crete then was kind of annexed or joined to the Roman Empire about 67 BC. So there's a lot of Greek history with the island, but then joined to Rome, becoming part of the Roman Empire some 60-odd years before Jesus came, and some 100 years or so, I suppose, before this time we're looking at now. Um, Paul had then assigned Titus to sort things out. Interesting that, you know, in the churches that were established there already, there were problems. There were things that needed to be dealt with. You know, and, and there is no church that has everything right. 
You know, we see that very clearly in the letters that Jesus writes in Revelation 2 and 3, the things that Jesus tries to address and set in order. And, of course, Paul asking Titus to sort things out in these places. You know, Jews from Crete, uh, we find, were present at the Feast of Pentecost um, back in Acts chapter 2. Uh, and again, they may have been the core group who'd returned to their land. So those that have been saved at that time, but maybe with not a great deal of, uh, of Christian depth, uh, drawing a lot from what they knew of the law and so on. So you start to understand as we go through the first, particularly the first chapter and then into the second, why there were doctrinal issues. You know, sadly, people often base things on their experience and what they know rather than really seeking the Lord. That's another reason why as a fellowship, you know, we want to teach verse by verse through scripture. Because if we were just to teach the things that we know and we're comfortable with, well, that's okay, but we might go off on tangents. We might get things not quite right. Whereas if we just teach verse by verse through scripture, we get the whole counsel of God. We're far less likely to go astray because scripture itself becomes our guide. It doesn't become just that which we find popular. And seemingly what has gone on in Crete was that these believers that were saved at the time of Pentecost had gone back so excited about the Lord, so excited that they understood about Jesus the Messiah. But then all sorts of other things have started to creep in, as uh, as we're going to see addressed uh, in Paul's writing. So uh, the letter really is a condensed version of Paul's uh, first letter to Timothy. It addresses some of the same themes, which is no surprise because you know churches are not that dissimilar. You know, there's the same challenges, the same problems that we face, uh, and so on. Um, It's interesting that he's going to emphasize in chapter 2, our blessed hope. We'll talk more about that when we get there. And uh, There's a lot of hope that's referred to um, throughout this. We'll talk more in a moment. So, again, Paul saw Titus as one of his most valued, most trusted uh, workers, co-workers in the gospel, uh, and he accompanied Paul and Barnabas on that difficult visit to the Jerusalem Council, which is referred to back in Galatians chapter 2. And uh, again, sent on the diplomatic mission to Corinth, as we've said a moment ago. Um, he took a severely worded letter, which we don't have a copy of. There are a number of letters to Corinth. We have two of those letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But seemingly there were four letters written to the church at Corinth by Paul. And one of them was a, a very severely worded letter where Paul was really trying to chasten them and put them back on track. Uh, and it seems to be that uh, Titus was the individual that was responsible for taking that letter to deliver it and so on. And not necessarily a very enviable task, but Titus being very faithful in these things. Uh, you kind of get the impression of kind of the character of this man through these things. Uh, and again, uh, those instructions that he took to enforce what Paul was saying at Corinth. Uh, then when he meets Paul in Macedonia... Well, clearly, he reports back that much had been accomplished. Um, so again, a very faithful individual doing that which he'd been asked to do, and no doubt what the Lord had called him to do. And then Paul has no trouble seemingly leaving him in authority uh, on the island of Crete. <clears throat> as we just look at the, the book as a whole, um, it's interesting that the instructions that Paul's really giving in the first chapter is as to elders in the assembly of the, the congregation and the, the, really the challenge is to put things in order. 
In the in chapter two, it's to the various classes that existed within the fellowship and so on. And really, it's about the doctrine. That's the key theme that runs through there. And then finally, the third chapter, it's really to all the members. Uh, and there's this real encouragement to maintain good works. Now, again, we're not saved by good works. Good works don't uh, contribute at all to our salvation. But we are to walk in these good works which the Lord has foreordained for us. You know, those works should be uh, a testimony of the reality of the relationship that we have with Jesus. Because he has done so much for us, there should be this natural overflowing of our desire to work and to live out uh, through the things we do to show our love for him. So again, chapter 1 is all things to be set in order. Chapter 2, sound in doctrine. Chapter 3, perform good work. So we're just going to try and take the first chapter uh, this morning as we go through. Paul, again, reminded Titus of three responsibilities he had to fulfill. The first one is to preach God's word. We'll see that in a moment. The second one was ordain qualified leaders. And Paul will give us some of those qualifications that we should be looking for. And the third thing is to silence false teachers. It's interesting, you know, we've gone through a series recently, last four weeks, looking at the coming judgment of the church. And this follows on really kind of very nicely from that because it's the same things. We've got the same problems that, that existed, um, that we looked at in Timothy and the same problems that we see now. Uh, unfortunately, we have, again, that word we'll see in a moment, that many are deceived. Many are led astray by these people whose, according to, to Paul to Titus, whose mouths must be stopped. You know, that they seem to be godly, they seem to have this outward appearance, and yet their works show very clearly. In fact, verse 16 says, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. You know, just because somebody says they know God, they believe God, it doesn't make them a Christian. It doesn't make them somebody who is serving Jesus Christ. You know, and Paul also alludes to the fact that a lot of these individuals were doing what they were doing purely for their own gain. Maybe for money, maybe for popularity, for whatever reasons. You know, these false teachers need to be silenced. And, and you know, that, that puts an onus on each of us. We, we'll look at it when we get to verse 9 in a minute, because really there's a challenge to all of us there. But actually, we are responsible for standing up and declaring the truth. You know, I'm sure you've heard it said before, you know, for, for, for evil men to prosper, good men simply need to do nothing. You know, and it's true that if we don't stand up and if we don't state the truth according to Scripture, then those that are stating opposing views will be the ones that are heard. Let's uh, jump into the text then. So, we start with Paul, okay? This is interesting because, again, I believe that this, this individual, Paul, was adopted by Sergius Paulus. He knows what it's like to be adopted into a family with position, with, uh, uh, with wealth in a sense. You know, and that really speaks of his own conversion as well, that acknowledging for all of us that we've been adopted into a family. We belong to the King of Kings. You know, so even in that name, there, there's a lesson. Uh, but Paul, a servant of God, that's the only time Paul refers to himself in that way. Because elsewhere he refers to him as a servant of Jesus Christ, but here he actually refers to himself as a servant of God. And of course, they are one and the same. We're going to see a number of times here. This is a good book actually to, to take your Jehovah's Witness frame through. Because a number of times we see this confirmation that Jesus is God. Jesus and God have to be one and the same. 
But we're told a servant of God. We'll look at it in detail in a second. Um, he says, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So recognizing these two elements. Firstly, again, that word doulos is the word that's used there in the Greek. Uh, it's a bond slave. Now, if you know anything about Leviticus and you understand the idea behind a bond slave, it's somebody who served in Leviticus, we're told, if they got to the end of their servitude, they were effectively allowed to be set free. But it wouldn't necessarily apply to their wife and their children. So if they were taken as a slave and they worked for a master, when they'd served their time, they were allowed to go. But their wife and their children would still belong to the master. And if they then said, you know, no, I would rather stay working for my master. I don't want to be set free. Then typically they'd be taken to the door of the house and they'd have an awl and they'd put a hole in their ear, basically pierce their ear. Uh, and they'd wear an earring. And that earring would be a, a sign or a symbol that they were now the, the bond slave of their master. They've been given, they've given themselves to their master for life. You know, and that's the, the phrase that Paul uses. That's exactly what he's saying he's done. He's given himself to Jesus Christ to serve him for life. He's chosen, he recognizes that he doesn't want to live on his own for his own ends. He wants to be a bond slave of Jesus. And here he says, a bond slave of God, serving God, but only owned by God effectively. It means that he's acknowledging that he's God's property. Now, there's a wonderful thing in that, that there's a huge protection issue, that if you're the property of God, well, then God will also look after you and protect you. You know, we're told in Corinthians that we have been bought at a price. Well, that means we're God's. That means that he owns us. That means he's going to care for us and look after us. So it says a a bondservant of of God. And it says an apostle of Jesus Christ. That that word apostle, I'm sure you're familiar, it means a a sent one. Or if you look at the the, the Greek, as you can do with most modern tools that give you uh, access to these things, but it implies that one who has been given instructions or sent on a mission. You know, that really, in some sense, it speaks of all of us. Although there were uh, the apostles specifically are those who met and served and knew Jesus in the flesh. You know, so there are church groups today that use that title apostle. But if you to be strict according to the biblical definition, an apostle was somebody that actually met Jesus. But in one sense, all of us are, are in that position. We have been sent. We've been called. We've been given instructions. But Paul says very clearly, you know, I, I belong to God. I'm the servant of God. And I've been sent by Jesus Christ. I'm on a mission. You know, he recognizes his position. And it's not about him. It's about the one who has called him, the one who has sent him out. And then he says, according to the faith of God's elect. Um, that's a Greek word there, according to. I like this because he's saying, you know, this, this is the situation that I'm a servant of God. I've been sent by Jesus Christ. According to, because of the faith of God's elect. Okay, he's saying that you know, this is the same for all those who believe. And God's elect here is a clear reference to the believers. As we said before, sometimes that phrase will refer to the Jews. And certainly in the Old Testament, or any reference to the Jews in Matthew 24 and so on, we see this, this phrase, God's elect, uh, used clearly in reference to the Jews. But for now, the Jews' eyes are blinded. Okay, from Matthew, from Luke 19 onwards, blindness was pronounced upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be brought in. And so those now that are 
responding in faith to the grace of God are classed as his elect. So very much we're speaking of those within the church that truly are his, those that have been called and saved. So according to the faith and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after God is. I like this because it's not just about the faith element, but it's also according uh, according to the acknowledging of the truth. And I like this because Christianity is not just about a faith thing. So many people think it's a faith thing, but it's also acknowledging of the truth, that which is true, that which is something that is substantiated. We're not believing, as Peter says, cunningly devised fables. What we believe is true, it's solid, it's sure. But that truth also isn't just truth in itself, it's truth which is after godliness, because understanding the truth changes our attitude, it changes our mindset. Again, these two things according to faith and truth. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. The issue of eternal security has come up recently and we had a Bible study looking at the scriptures that make it very clear that God has promised to those that are his eternal life. If it's eternal, you can't lose it. And we have this statement. Why, why would Paul even say this? If there was a danger of losing your salvation, why would he even say in this context, in the hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began? God is the one that's promised this. God is the one that's made this offer. It, it didn't originate with us. It's originated with him. He's the one that is going to do this. He does all the work. Jesus on the cross completed the work. We sang this morning that Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. I don't owe part to Jesus and part to myself because I maintained my good works. No, that, that, that's a perversion of the gospel. No, Jesus did it all. All to him we owe. And we have this hope. It's, it's not a, a dream. It's not like a, a hope sometimes that, you know, well, you know, hope this week turns out okay. That kind of thing. It's a concrete assurance. I mean, we sing as well, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. But that's not just an idle statement, it's true. We have this hope, and it's not just a uh, wishing for, it's that concrete assurance. It's what the writer of the Hebrews tells us about faith. It's the assurance of things that we haven't yet seen, but we know to be true. Hope of eternal life, which God, God cannot lie, promised before the world began. This was always God's plan, to bring in those Jews and Gentiles, whoever would respond, to be part of his eternal family. You know, and it's not wrong to have hope in something better than the here and now. You know, sometimes, you know, people can almost seem a little bit melancholy if they, they, they talk about now and, and the way things are and the problems we have. But, you know, if, if that's countered by a hope in what is to come, that, that's not a bad thing at all. Because this world isn't particularly wonderful at times. And yes, we have good times and there's some good moments in life and we can enjoy various aspects of life. But this world is upside down. This world is not the way it should be. It wasn't like this at the beginning. This isn't how God intended it to be. 
you know, we start off in Genesis with God and man walking in the garden. In Revelation, we see that walk finally resumed. And everything in between has been the story of what God did to make that walk possible. Because we weren't able to do it on our own. Adam and Eve proved that the whole human race would stumble, would fall, would not be able to maintain that relationship with God that God required. But God, because he is able, did it. There's that, that, one of my favorite lines in scripture is in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, I believe. Verse 4, it just, it just says, um, I'm just going to read from the beginning, it says, And you which he has quickened, who are dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom we also had all our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, but God. Those two words, that changes everything but God. And he goes on, and then Paul, as he, he just does, he can't stop himself. Who is rich in mercy and his great love, wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sins, close brackets effectively, has quickened us together. The, the, the statement, if you take the parenthesis out, it's, but God has quickened us together with Christ. And then another parenthesis, he says, by grace you are saved. By grace. Not by your efforts, not by works, by grace. But those two words, they're, they're, they're just, to me, the two most incredible words in the whole of the Bible. But God. Because if it hadn't have been for God, we could not have done it. That walk that began in Eden would be tragically lost. But God. And that makes it all possible. That's why we have this hope. That's why Paul speaks here to Titus about the hope of eternal life. And he'll go on to talk a little bit more about our blessed hope in chapter 2. We'll see that when we get there. Yeah, we have so much to look forward to. And as C.S. Lewis said, this is just a shadow land. This isn't how it's really going to be. It's like everything's covered by this, this horrible dark fog of sin in this world now. And yes, Jesus has paid the price for our sin, but this world is still groaning and looking for that redemption. Acts 3.21 speaks of that. Romans also speaks of these present sufferings, not worthy to be compared. So you see, God said it and he can't lie. Notice also that it was promised before the world began. God is outside of time. In a few, maybe a month or so's time, once we've gone through uh, Titus, Lord willing, I want to just do maybe another topical study for a week or two, uh, just to show you just how much God is really, truly in control of history. And looking at it from a Jewish perspective, um, looking at it in regard um, to the year of Jubilee and the way that the Lord has faithfully uh, fulfilled that throughout history. Uh, it, it's breathtaking. Um, but we'll get there uh, in a while, uh, Lord willing. But again, God is in complete control. You know, He knew us before the world began. He had a plan, a purpose. He had a plan for Paul, a plan for Titus, and He has a plan for us. You know, and it, it was just like Sue shared with us this morning. So, so valuable those words, uh, that scripture that she shared with us. But have, speaking of God, but having due times manifested His word through preaching. 
And then Paul says, which is committed unto me. It's a bold thing to say, isn't it? But Paul is saying, God has committed his word unto me. What what an incredible statement that a human being can say that God has given me his word to give out. And yet each one of us are in that position. Now, Paul had the privilege of writing these things, and of course they find their way into God's word, the scriptures we have. But all of us have been given, committed this word, that we can boldly declare the truth of these things. That God has manifested his word through preaching. That means he needs preachers, he needs vessels whom he can use. Which is committed unto me according to the commandment of our God and Saviour. Notice, we've already alluded to the fact that Paul is a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He says that in many other places in the New Testament. And here he says, as a bond slave of God, you can't serve two masters. So he has to be that God and Jesus are one and the same. And here he makes a statement that God is Savior. And yet we know clearly that Jesus is Savior. We're going to see that come up again in a moment. There is no doubt that God and Jesus are one and the same, that Jesus Christ is God, manifest in the flesh. The word preaching that's used here has just got the idea of a herald or a trumpet. It's a real proclamation. Uh, And that's exactly what Paul did. Paul wasn't quiet or silent. Uh, He didn't, you know, worry about offending people with his preaching. He just wanted to preach the truth. He left the consequences and the outcomes to God. And he says, according to the commandment of God. You see, that... This preaching was committed to Paul because God had said to him, Paul, I want you to do this. This is what I'm calling you to do. This is the instruction I have for you. See, God reveals his message through preaching, through the foolishness of preaching. It seems strange to the world that God would choose that. But actually, it's the most logical the more you start to think about it. Okay, it was given by God and not by man. And again, Savior, frequent term in Titus. Okay, we all as sinners need a savior. So then he gets on to his proper introduction to Titus. So he's just, just the first part, he's just saying, this is who's writing to you. But to Titus, my own son after the common faith. It's a faith that we share. This isn't something that's unique. This isn't something that, that one individual's made up. It's the common faith. It's the same faith that we will come to together based upon God's word. It's not a faith that is unique to some individual or some uh, particular sect or group. It's the common faith. Jude speaks of our common salvation. I've probably shared with you many times before that some years ago when I was in a band, um, we were auditioning for a lead singer at the time. And um, obviously we wanted somebody that was musically capable, but we also wanted somebody that was spiritually switched on as well. And so we were kind of checking them out from a musical perspective, seeing they could actually could sing properly, and we were also looking at having chats with them. And it was incredible how talking to individuals within 30 seconds, you can tell where they are. Yeah, there's a few simple questions about, you know, their walk with the Lord and, you know, their love for Scripture, their love for God's Word, their understanding of God's Word. Yeah, and some would like, oh, well, I don't really read the Bible much. You know, it's like, well, I don't want to talk to you very much. You know, and others would just, you know, just exude this love and this passion for God's word. And so you'd ask them a few questions. Oh, yeah, no, I was reading the other day, and just there's this unity. And the incredible thing was that when you find somebody that loves God's word, immediately there is a unity. You don't have to, you know, well, what do you think about that particular doctrine or that particular doctrine? There's just a unity. The Holy Spirit does the work. It's a common faith. 
And it's one of the greatest evidences that what we believe is not something that, that we, you know, we individually interpret and come to our own conclusions. It's something the Holy Spirit does and unites us and draws us together. And you know, you can meet a believer who you've not ever met in, in your entire history. Within two or three minutes, a couple of simple th- things are said and you know there's that unity. And it's a lovely thing. It's wonderful. You meet other people who don't really care much for God's word and you're kind of like, okay, so I know I can't talk to you about this subject and that subject. I can't talk to you about that and this because you're going to be offended by those things. And, you know, that's so sad. And then he says, grace, mercy, and peace. That's the, 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 the greeting that Paul gives to pastors. Okay, to, to others, in other letters, Paul simply says, grace and peace. Those are kind of twins of the New Testament. We see them together so often, grace and peace. But when he speaks to pastors, Paul says, grace, mercy, and peace. He's like, as a pastor, you're going to need mercy as well. Grace, mercy, and peace. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says? Our Savior. He just said that God is our Savior. And now he's saying that Jesus is our Savior. For both to be true, Jesus has to be God. It's very simple. And there's four according to's we've just seen there. According to the faith of God's elect. It's because of the faith. This is why he's doing what he's doing. Because of the truth that is there. It's because of the commandment of God. And because of this common faith. This is why Paul is doing what he's doing. You know, if you look at those four elements... Uh, and the three pastoral epistles, you recognize how Paul related everything in his ministry to the Word of God. <clears throat> okay, so we move on to the, the kind of second section now. Uh, it says, for a bishop, now he can speak about those in authority. Um, it says, for a bishop, uh, actually, sorry, we just uh, missed a verse, um, verse five, sorry, we missed. For the, this cause I left thee, Increase that thou should set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I appointed thee. If any man be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly, and then he goes on for a bishop, must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, Sober, just, holy, temperate. And then he says, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may by, be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. It's interesting. The New Testament makes it very clear that in Ephesians, you look at chapter 4 of Ephesians, the role of pastor is a role that is ordained by God. It's not something that somebody chooses to do. It's something that God calls to, God ordains. But you see here that Titus has been given this instruction in various places in Crete to go, to set things in order, to deal with the challenges and the problems that are there, and to set up elders. The elders are there primarily to support the work of the pastor that the Lord has put in place. But there's qualifications given. Very, very similar to those that are given for pastors, but the same things here. It speaks again to be blameless, the husband of one wife. And that, that's the idea is that somebody can't accuse you of something. You know, elsewhere we're told that we should, you know, our lives should give no appearance of evil. I think it was Charles Spurgeon that says, um, uh, of the choice of two evils, choose none. 
You know, it's not that, you know, it's the better of two evils. That's what some people kind of, that, that expression. You know, the choice of two evils, choose none. Don't take any option there. You know, we, we, we should be such that people can't lay an accusation or a claim against us. It speaks of being the husband of one wife. And the context, again, we said this when we were looking at Timothy, it's really speaking of one wife at a time. It's not saying that somebody who's been divorced in that sense couldn't serve in this capacity. There is an implication that it speaks of your first wife, but if you look at the Greek behind the word, the implication is more that you don't have multiple wives. You know, And of course, in that culture, there was the reality that polygamy existed and so on, but you should have somebody who is devoted to their wife, because why? What we to be a model of Christ and his church? Christ doesn't have multiple wives, he has one bride. The, the, the church, the body of Christ. And so those that are representing him also need to be models of that situation. It speaks of having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. Yeah, it's the same as we're told in Timothy, you know, because if we're looking after the affairs of the church, those in leadership, well, if you can't look after your own children, how can you take care, as we read in Timothy, of the house of God? You know, it's so important that your children are are seen to be well behaved. And then it goes on. It says for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God. The steward doesn't manage his own uh, issues, but that of his employer, that of his boss, his master. And again, that idea of a fiduciary uh, comes in again. And then we get on to not being self-willed. Not overbearing. Again, there's no room for arrogance amongst those that serve in the church. You know, you're not out for your own ends. You're not out to try and win people to yourselves. It, it, it surprises and saddens me sometimes the number of occasions I've seen, uh, not just here, but in many other fellowships and other pastors I've spoken to, uh, what I refer to as the, the Absalom uh, mindset. You know, the situation with Absalom, you know, David's son, and of course the whole horrible situation that led to him being banished from Jerusalem, and eventually he's brought back. But David doesn't really, you know, allow himself to see him, and there's this barrier between them. And so Absalom goes and sits at the gates, and starts to listen to everybody. Oh, come, come tell me, are you unhappy with the king? Well, tell me all about it. And so everybody starts telling Absalom, oh, well, if I was the king, I wouldn't do that. Really, does that happen? Now, I mean, I've seen those things kind of happen in the workplace. And you end up kind of with a mutiny against the boss and so on. And that, that you, know, you may have experienced those things. But that should never happen in the church. You know, I was part of a church some years ago. Um, and I saw that exactly that thing happen. The people were inviting others in the church around the house. And all they would do is sit and listen to the complaints about the pastor. And guess what happened? There was a split in the church. And the pastor knew nothing about the things that were being said. They knew nothing about the, the so-called problems, which actually most of them were invented. They weren't even really genuine problems. Now, the elders should be there to stop and to prevent these things happening. You know, there, there should be that open communication. And, and it's not about drawing people to yourself, having your own desire, your own plan, and, uh, and kind of, in a sense, building on your own importance. Not soon angry, again. 
you know, there's no place for any Christian really to have a temper. You know, I, I was kind of pleased yesterday. Well, I wasn't pleased. I'll explain the situation and see why I wasn't pleased. But Joy was just, just relaying an account um, yesterday evening. I'd been out in the garden during the day and I was trying to lay some flooring in the, in the, the summer house we just done. Uh, and there's ceramic tiles and I was cutting them with a grinder and I just got this cut kind of pretty much perfect. And I went to turn it around to cut the other side and I, I just, my brain didn't engage very quickly and I went to pick up the side I'd just been cutting. Now, anybody who's ever done anything like that will recognize that that bit I just cut was very hot. So I picked it up but I immediately dropped it and as dropping it, the grinder was still on and it kind of went all over the top of it to ruin the piece completely. So back to square one on that one. And my response was, ah, that was it. And Joy just said, oh, we, you know, I could tell you were frustrated. But, you know, I, I didn't burst out with a string of expletives or I, I didn't, you know, blame the world and everything. You know, there are times that things happen that we don't like. And, you know, when I was putting the felting on the roof, I banged my hammer. I banged my thumb with a hammer. Um, and Amita just kind of noticed that I went, ah. But that was it. You know, and again, we shouldn't be such that have this kind of temper that flares up and we just go off the handle and we say all sorts of things that we later regret. I mean, certainly for those in leadership in churches, but for all of us. You know, it really just, the fruit of the Spirit should be there. It's been said once before that temper is such a wonderful thing that it's a shame to lose it. <laughs> also, we should be lovers of hospitality. And it goes without saying, those that are in, in leadership within churches should be, you know, love having people around, love uh, welcoming people into their homes. A lover of good men, sober, that doesn't just mean without alcohol, not drunk, it just in terms of sober in judgment, in thinking, not quick to make decisions, not rash, just holy temperate. And again, I'm just going to skip through these things for the sake of time. They're all in the notes, you can read more. Uh, but this is the verse that really strikes me out of this first chapter. It says, holding fast the faithful word as has been taught. You know, this is what we have in scripture, the faithful word, and we hold fast to it. That he may be able by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Uh, that's our standard. That, that's where we revert to. We revert to scripture, not our opinions or whatever else. This last section then, I'm just going to read through the, the text, because it's really a, a kind of a continuation of what we've been talking about over the last four weeks, about that which is coming into the church, is already in the church, and has always been there from the first century. And this is what Paul is saying to Titus. For there are many, notice again that word many, unruly and vain talkers and deceivers. Now, Paul says, especially they of the circumcision. As we said earlier, those that quite possibly had converted from Judaism, that they Pentecost had come back to Crete, and they were spreading these various ideas, and no doubt talking about how important the law was, and how we should be under the law still, and all those kind of ideas. Many unruly and vain talkers. They have no standard. They're, they're just blown around with every wind of doctrine. And deceivers. Oh, it's so sad that there are so many in the church and so on, whose mouths must be stopped. You know, for those in authority particularly, because he's, he's talking about those in authority here, and those in leadership in churches, 
who have a responsibility to stop anybody that's teaching or saying things that is contrary to sound doctrine. Because the danger is that those individuals will go on and they will subvert whole houses. People get led astray. People are very quick to believe gossip. Teaching things they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Now, again, that may be financial gain, but more often than not, it's about people's popularity. And people will say things, and people then will, will side with them, and so on. It's a dangerous place to be. And this is one of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. This is a comment that one of them apparently had made. And, uh, and Paul goes on and says that this witness is true. I mean, what I'm telling you is true. This is what, is what, this is what was said. He says, wherefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now they may not listen, but we are to rebuke, we are to set up this standard. Again, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. And, you know, and we could include in these things now all the fables that have come in in our generation. Things like the teaching of evolution, which turned men from God. At the time for Titus, there was the real issue of those from a Jewish background bringing in these Jewish laws that men had put together that kept people from a real relationship with God. But we have numerous things today that come in that purport to be true. Things that within the church and things from outside the church. And it says, Unto the pure all things, uh, all things are pure, but unto them that is vile and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess they know God, but in works they deny him being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. So we'll leave it there. Read ahead. Um, next Sunday, um, being the fifth Sunday, we're going to have a ch- special children's service. Uh, the children will take part uh, in the service a bit more, and we're going to have a, a very special kind of children's talk for them again. Um, so in two weeks' time, Lord willing, we're going to get back on to Titus chapter 2. But please read ahead. If you have a chance, study it yourself. Look at these things. Allow the Lord to speak to you through them. Um, that we may grow together. There's things uh, to to the women, to the men, to all of us uh, in this next chapter. Um, so please read ahead. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you this morning for this opportunity just to look at these things, to be reminded, Lord, that you're a God who has called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Lord, you've called us all to go and to be servants of you, stewards of you, of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, that we would go into this world, that we would proclaim like a trumpet blast your gospel. Lord, help us to have the boldness and the courage to do that. Lord, help us to be aware that there are many, as Paul says to Timothy, gainsayers, Lord, who are out for their own ends, who would seek to pervert or disrupt the preaching of the gospel. Father, help us as a church to have real unity Father, we pray for the leadership of this church. We pray for our elders. We pray that as a group we would work together with one cause only, and that is to see the name of Jesus exalted and glorified. Father, we thank you for all that you have done in our lives and in this fellowship, and pray, Lord, that you continue for your glory until that time that you come and take us home to be with you. Father, keep us close to you through this coming week, we pray. Keep us, Lord, walking in the way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.